0: As you turn to Exodus 24, um, let's stand for the reading of the word. Exodus 24, verses 1 through 11. Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said, we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls, and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said, we will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the seventy elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate and drank. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Back here. I'm going to turn that off. How's that? All right. Good morning, everybody. It's good to be here with you. Um, Our son, our oldest son, Wesley, just graduated from high school, and he's currently on a trip. Um, And this trip uh, involved cross-country flight, and he's going on a cruise. And um, you know, he he kind of he keeps to himself. You know, he's an 18-year-old boy. So, but every once in a while, he'll he'll kind of you will see some enthusiasm out of him. And um, and he was saying, he said, Dad, Dad, on our flight, we get to stop in New Jersey for two hours. <laughs> and he said, and he said, and I said, Well, Wesley, what time's your flight leaving from um, from Orange County? And he said, We're leaving at nine o'clock at night. And I said, Well, what time what time are you getting into um, to Miami and Fort Lauderdale that area? And he said, "Well, we're getting there. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna land there at 8 a.m. 8 a.m. And he was very excited. And what I what I love about it, what I love about it, is sometimes when we in our familiar, those of us who've traveled a little bit, are what we realize is that he's on the red eye with a layover in Newark at at 3 a.m. But what I love, what I love, is that. There's something about the enthusiasm uh, of not knowing the adventure of of all of that and that sometimes after we hear things that they become routine, like travel becomes routine. Sometimes we lose the awe and wonder that we're in a metal tube powered by jets and that we can do that and I can like watch a movie while I'm flying through the air at, you know, 500 miles or 300 miles an hour, whatever it is, okay? I don't know. I'm not a pilot. Okay, but the idea is this idea that... um, Sometimes when we come to Scripture, we can be like the seasoned traveler, right? That it seems routine to us. And sometimes we even think, oh, I've heard that before, I've heard that before. And one of the things I love about what what this, this series that Dave has embarked on, this idea of seeing Jesus in the Old Testament, what we heard from Daniel last week, and hearing about Passover, and, and hearing the Scripture read out loud, that and hearing... Even what Daniel was saying and and hearing people, hearing the scripture being read, and it's like, oh, wow, I hadn't realized that the first time through. Like This is new, this is fresh. And so today is an attempt uh, for me to come at something that might be routine for you, that's something you might have learned back in Sunday school, back in the day, but to come at it and to try to see this with fresh eyes. And what I'd like to do this morning is I'd like to take a look at this passage, Exodus 34. Or I'm sorry, Exodus 24. And to ask the questions about what is Jesus doing, what, what is this passage, this passage of Moses on, the, on Mount Sinai and coming down and, and killing animals and, and holding blood and then splashing blood on people and on altars, and what does that all mean? But what's interesting is that this passage was very much on the mind of Jesus while he was here on earth. And very much on the mind of his followers, his first followers, when they were trying to explain what it is that Jesus had done in his own death and his own suffering. And so what I'd like to do this morning is see if we can find some awe and wonder in what might be routine. Maybe it's not routine. I didn't become a Christian until I was in high school, and I remember hearing this stuff and, and being like, what? This is crazy. And definitely we're traveling to another world when we read this. But I don't want this to be routine. I want us to come at it and find some awe and wonder. And so, especially this phrase that we find in this passage, the blood of the covenant. Uh, Moses says, this is the blood of the covenant. And I want to kind of key on that um, for a as we move forward. And we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's okay that we do it two weeks in a row. I'm not saying that last week didn't count. Okay? What we're saying is that there's something going on with Jesus and the Lord's Supper that, has, that brings Passover in, that also brings this passage in, that also brings other passages in, and Jesus is doing something specific and, and wonderful when he institutes the Lord's Supper. So, our first point of awe and wonder that you might already know and that we've already alluded to this morning, is that Jesus is Jewish, it turns out. (laughs) And all of his followers, his earliest followers, were all Jewish. And what that means is that when Jesus was teaching, when Jesus was acting, and when his followers were thinking back over his life and thinking about the significance of what he said and what they did, what they were doing was they were thinking about the Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. They would have simply called the Scriptures. That was their Bible. And the things that Jesus taught and the things that Jesus did that he was finding significance for what he was saying and doing from what had come before in these scriptures. And that's what this series is about that Dave started a few weeks ago when he talked about Abraham. We talked about Adam. Then he talked about Abraham. We've talked about Passover. And now we're going to talk about the giving of the covenant. So one of the things you can do, this is one way to apply this. When you read the Gospels, sometimes when you see Jesus do or say something... It's it's good to go back and to say, what is he alluding to? So, like, for example, when Jesus turns water to wine in John chapter 3, one of the questions that you might have as a first reader is, hey, in the other scriptures, in the scriptures, who else does tricks with water? Right? So, like, you might, and what might come to mind is, like, well, Moses, Moses turned water to blood as a curse, but now Jesus is turning water to wine, wine is a blessing. And so you might look at this at these this impl- implied contrast between Jesus and Moses. When you hear that Jesus goes up on a mountain and he gives a sermon or any comments on the law. Is there anyone else who went up on a mountain that law was involved with, right? That this is the idea of what's going on that when Jesus feeds miraculously a bunch of Jewish people out in the wilderness with bread from who knows where it came from, we might think back to like Moses and manna, right? This is how we read our New Testaments because not only was Jesus Jewish, but everyone who wrote the New Testament was Jewish. And so these are the sorts of things that we keep in mind when we read our Bibles, when we read our New Testament. So that, that's, and I hope you didn't hear that, like that's a two-hour layover in Newark, okay, that that's routine, that that's the idea that, no, 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 there's, there's stuff in here that I might not see if I don't realize that Jesus is Jewish and that all of his followers are Jewish. And so with this passage this morning, what I, wanted, I just want to walk through this passage, and I want to ask some questions about what does it mean that Jesus is thinking about this passage, particularly when he institutes the Lord's Supper. Okay, so let's take a look at this passage. So anyway, a little lingo, a little lingo. This idea of illusions, like we talked about, Moses, manna, water to wine, water to blood, things like that. Jewish rabbis had a word for that. They called it a remez. We, in, in liter, if you took a, an English literature class, which maybe all of you did if you went to college, um, you would have known this as an allusion, a literary allusion to things. As New Testament scholars, we call it an intertext, okay? Whatever you want to call it, that's what it is. That there is some kind of a, a reaching to an echo of something from the past and bringing it into a passage that's being written. So in this text, Exodus 24, is on the mind of Jesus and his earliest followers when they sit down to make sense of Jesus spilling his own blood as the blood of the covenant. All right, so before we get to Exodus 24, we have a couple things to do. One is this, we've got to do a little Hebrew, and the thing is this, we've got to understand what a covenant is. We don't really use that language very much today Uh, In our society, we don't talk as much about covenants. It's not a dead word, but it certainly is not living as a word, as a term that it would have been in the ancient world. So in Hebrew, the term is berit, and it is the idea that between two people, when you wanted to come to an agreement between two parties that bound them to mutually undertake things on each other's behalf, that was a berit. That was a covenant. Two parties mutually, mutually agreeing that they would come together and they would undertake certain things for each other on each other's behalf. That is a berit, that is a covenant. Now, that would happen between two people, but what we see is that God actually decides, I am going to initiate a berit with My people, or with with humans, and I'm going to call them my people. So, a berit in God's sense, a covenant in God's sense, is that God makes promises to extend benefits to those who are willing to receive them. That God self obligates Himself to extend benefits and blessings to people if they are willing to receive them. That's a covenant. So, let's take a look at this covenant, or at least the renewal of the covenant that's going on in Exodus 24. So if you have your Bibles open up to Exodus 24, and we're going to note a couple of things that happen here, when someone in Hebrew it would be, you would you would cut a covenant. The, the verb is you, you we would say you'd make a covenant, but they would say you'd cut a covenant. But there what 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 in, what's involved in the making or the cutting of a covenant. In 24 chapter 1 Moses The Lord said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. Nadab and Abihu are Aaron's sons and 70 elders of the nation of Israel and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. So they've made this threefold distinction, okay? Moses goes up on the mountain, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu and the 70 elders come to kind of the foot of the mountain, and then the rest of the people have to stay away from the mountain. If you read in Exodus, this all begins in Exodus chapter 19. And in Exodus chapter 19, you have this beginning of Moses going up on the mountain, the elders coming up, and the people staying afar, because the mountain is so terrible that there's lightning and gloom and whirlwind, and there's this this command, even if a beast touches the mountain, it must be stoned. It's the, the presence of the Lord comes down on the mountain, and the mountain becomes holy, and anything unclean or unholy that touches the mountain is gonna get wiped out. And so there becomes this distinction that God says, Moses can come up, the 70 elders can come up here, but the rest of the people have to stay away. Okay? So we have this distinction that comes along. In verse 3, that starts in 19, so in then chapter 19 you have this, this idea that uh, that Moses is coming up and then God gives Moses the tw- the 10 commandments the two tablets and then he gives these various other commands in chapters 20, 21, 22 and 23 most of which are about how to deal justly with other people how to be fair to other people especially to people who do not have the protections that they might need things like slaves things like uh, people like like women that are that are more vulnerable people that are sojourning with them, okay. people who don't have the the infrastructure around them to keep them up. Moses says, you've got to act justly. God says, if you're going to be my people, you have to be just to these people. And a lot, if you read in chapters 21, 22, and 23, a lot of the laws that are given on that initial covenant are about how you're going to deal with people who are not able to protect themselves. So, verse 3 of chapter 24, Moses came and told all the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. This is this is kind of the, the central notion of a covenant. God is going to say, Look, I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people. And what that means is, as your God, I'm going to promise blessing, I'm going to deliver blessing. But as my people, there are certain things that I'm asking you to do. I'm going to obligate myself to you, but I'm going to ask that you would obligate yourselves to live a certain way and obligate yourselves to me. So they say, all that the Lord has said, we will do. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord, uh, which is later going to be known as the book or the scroll of the covenant. So everything that happens between in chapter 20, 21, 22, and 23, Moses writes down into this scroll, and now they have this scroll. And all the people have said, everything that the Lord has just said, we will do. And you have the the makings now of a covenant. All that's left now is to seal the covenant. And the way it's going to be sealed, what we find out is it's going to be sealed with blood. I don't know why, and no one does know why, to be honest. I've read commentaries. It was funny this week, I was like, man, I got to do some work in Exodus 24. And I started reading these commentaries. Nobody can agree on why the blood is used. We'll get to some ideas, but here we can go. Here we go. So in verse 4 or verse 5, no, sorry, verse 4, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning. He built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. So if, if here's the mountain, this is, you've got the altar. And we've got an altar down here. And he builds it with 12 pillars, and he, he makes an altar. And then he has young men, in verse 5, he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings. Two things. Burnt offerings... Um, there, there's a little bit of a difference. There's, I don't know if we, this is something for me, I, I got really interested in kind of the, the nature of the atonement of Jesus and what he did. And what I realized is there's not just one type of sacrifice, there's lots of types of sacrifices that accomplish lots of different things. One of the things that they're offering, they're offering a burnt offering, um, which is an offering of cleansing, but they're also offering a peace offering before God, which is an offering of fellowship, so one is an offering for cleansing, one is an offering fellowship, this invitation to fellowship, or I should say a response to the invitation of fellowship. And so they do this, they take, they offered burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offering of oxen to the Lord. Oxen, not one ox, two oxen, and some translations might say calves, these would be bull calves, at least two of them, okay. Now, I've never seen an animal slaughtered before. Okay? Maybe some of you have. Maybe some of you lived on a farm, a dairy. Maybe some of you have worked in a butcher shop, something like that. I've never seen an animal slaughtered. But these are large animals. And this is what happens. Verse 6, Moses took half of the blood, so they slit the throats of these animals, and the blood starts to run out. Moses doesn't just let the blood run out. He takes, he he catches the blood in basins. The the ESV says basins. I the the version that was read there was bowls. These are big animals, these are basins. And they collect the blood in basins. It's a lot of blood. Two bulls, big basins of blood, and this is what they do. Moses took half of the blood, put it into basins, half of the blood he threw against the altar. So he takes half of the blood, and he splashes it. Some translations might say sprinkle. It's a basin of blood. Okay? He splashes it on the altar, and then it says this. Then he took the book of the covenant, which we just found out is exodus 20 through 23 with the 10 commandments and the rest of these commands to be just and fair he took the book of the covenant and he read it again in the hearing of the people and again the people say all that the lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient and moses took the rest of the blood and he threw it on the people I love that there were gasps. I just I love that there were gasps because it says we're not on a two-hour layover in Newark anymore, are we? <laughs> like, we, we're really hearing this. We're, we're really hearing that Moses took a basin of blood and he started splashing it on people. What? All right. Now, what the heck? Why does he do that? What's with blood? What is going on with blood? And we just sang a bunch of songs about blood. And if you're new here, you're like, why are they singing about blood, right? Well, there's something about blood. There's something about blood, and we can't entire, We don't entirely know what it is. There are clues in the Old Testament. There are clues in the New Testament about what blood accomplishes. But to be fair and honest, not everybody agrees about what this blood and the splashing of the blood accomplishes. One idea is that blood purifies. Now, at the same time, this is a little counterintuitive, because if you ever got blood on your clothes, it's not exactly purifying the clothes, right? It's not exactly, it's staining, it feels like it stains, but the thing is, whatever's going on here, there's some notion, and this is understood in the Old Testament, that blood has a purifying Factor. So a burnt offering is offered to purify. A sin offering is offered to remove stains. It's interesting, it's counterintuitive, but blood removes stains. Why is that? Well, um, blood also represents life that in exodus it talks about that the blood of the animals when it's offered it's offered as a means it's it's the life blood that this is why when somebody spills blood they're taking life and that li- that blood must be is demanded if blood is spilled okay so there's 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 something about there's a, there's a, there's life in the blood there's and and the giving of the blood is also death the blood also has a purifying factor about it but there's also a sense in which blood is a binding agent. And that might be what's going on here. That as God has said, I will be your God and you will be my people. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to do all these things for you. I'm going to lead you into the land. I'm going to watch over you. And the people say, all that you do, all that you say, we will do. And now Moses takes blood He splashes it on the altar, which may represent God. And then he takes the rest of the blood and he splashes it on the people that represents the people that now they are bound in this covenant. There might be a sense of purification, there might be a sense of life giving, but probably what's going on here is that there's some kind of binding that's taking place a blood covenant. This is, not, this is not uncommon necessarily in different cultures, but even in a North American modern culture, you talk about being blood brothers with someone or something like that. And, you know, We have our own ideas about what blood might accomplish, but it's the blood of the covenant. Now, it's not over yet. The binding is not yet over because there's a couple things that have to take place. So Moses took the blood, verse 8, he threw it on the people, and he said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, they went up. So now, the 70 elders are not just, they're not just at the base of the mountain. They're allowed to go up. And they go up, and this is what they do. This is what they see first. They saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone. Some of your translations might say, "might say um, lapis lazuli" or something like that. The, what is it with sapphire? It's it's a it's an opaque blue stone. Or lapis lazuli is uh, is an opaque blue precious stone with speckles of of uh, gold pyrite in it. And so, as they come up, what they see is kind of, they see like the sky, and they're probably seeing the bot. this is the idea, the bottom of the throne of God in the heavens. So if God is in the heavens, they're looking through the bottom of his throne to see him. So they don't actually see him, they see his throne and his throne room. And what do they do? Now, one of the things we might expect is that, again, remember darkness, gloom, whirlwind, if a beast touches the mountain, it must be stoned. But now, here's God allowing 70 Israelites to just walk up into his presence. And the author makes it clear, um, he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. He let them come. And it says, they beheld God, and they ate and drank. That essentially what God had done is he had invited them up the mountain to eat a meal with him. This is how a covenant works. You have the two sides, they come to an agreement, there's a sealing of the covenant, and wherever you see this in Scripture, you'll tend to see this, that the two parties at the end of it will dine together. That it's not just the blood that seals the covenant, it's the eating together that seals the covenant. Now, you might, have, you might have, we don't, look, we, we have fast food, we, we have, you know, we microwave popcorn, like, you know, whatever, meals to us might be a little incidental. They might even be a little inconvenient to us. But meals have, meals have a really interesting power about them. And there are sociological experiments and, and, and studies that, that have shown that what you consume with someone has something to say about the level of intimacy that you share with that person. If if I'm doing yard work and my neighbor's doing yard work and um, and I say, hey, let's have a cup of iced tea out on the driveway, it assumes a certain level of relationship, right? But if I say, hey, let's, let's get coffee tomorrow morning, that assumes a different level of relationship, right? Cold cuts on the kitchen table implies a different level of intimacy as Thanksgiving dinner, Right, What you consume with people says something about your level of intimacy, but whether you consume anything with people, with other people, says something about your level of intimacy with them. The mere fact that you have shared a meal with somebody probably brings something up within you, within your humanness. We've broken bread together. There's something that has gone on between us in the sharing of a meal. And here we have this very interesting cutting of a covenant, the setting of a covenant, the making of a covenant, that involves this agreement between these two parties that is sealed in blood and then consummated in a meal together. Now, um, eight chapters later, the nation of Israel is making a gold calf at the base of the mountain. So it didn't really take. I mean, (laughs) this is the hard, this is the tough thing about this covenant. And the book of Hebrews is going to make this clear. That this covenant, it didn't have the power it needed in order to create a sustainable relationship between God's people and God. Because God was not the problem. God's people were going to be rebellious. We know that because as God's people, we're rebellious. And that there's something, there, there was this anticipation that there was, need, there was a need for a better covenant, a different covenant. And even this covenant, to be honest, this is not, this is a renewal, an amendment. I mean, let's be, we're Americans, so we can talk about amendments. The first amendment, okay, okay, Constitution, thank you. Um. The Abrahamic covenant, this covenant is probably an amendment to that. But later God says, hey, look, there's going to be a need for another, an amended covenant. If you turn to Jeremiah 31, we're going to take a little bit of a journey here. Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 31 and verse 31, that's easy to remember. So eight chapters later, the people had broken the covenant, and at that point, the covenant is renewed, but the covenant is tenuous. And at a particular low point, the prophet Jeremiah is the prophet that is with the nation of Israel as they're anticipating the Babylonians coming in and basically wiping them out, decimating them. We heard about Ezekiel, who's a contemporary of Jeremiah. Um, We had a whole year on Ezekiel, it felt like, which was great. I loved it. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, or you could also read that as a renewed covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Not like Exodus 24, I'm going to make a new covenant. He says, My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. We're going to come back to that. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I was reading this in Hebrew. And a good reading of this is actually the idea that I'm going to take my law, and I might put it within them, but I'm going to take my law and I'm going to give it to them. The verb is to give it to them. I'm going to give it within them. I'm not going to give it to them up on a mountain, high on a mountain with only one person coming down. I'm going to come down within them, and I'm going to give the covenant within them. I'm not going to be this distant God. I'm not going to put barriers between. I'm not going to say, you stay there, I stay here. I'm going to come down within their midst. And I'm going to bring my law within their midst. I'll put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, not on stone tablets. I'm not going to write it on stone tablets. I'm going to come within them, and I'm going to write with the finger of God. I'm going to write on their hearts. And then the quintessential statement of the covenant I will be their God, and they will be my people. I will be their God, they will be my people. The heart of the covenant. God does for them what they cannot do for themselves. All right. I hope we're not in a two-hour layover in Newark anymore. I mean, this is because now as we think about Jesus and what Jesus is doing with the Lord's Supper and what Jesus is even doing with the incarnation, God has come within us, in our midst. He has spoken to us and he sent his spirit in our hearts. It's a new covenant. It's a renewed covenant. It's a covenant that has a sustaining power, with a once-for-all sacrifice. All right, a little side note here. It's not in the passage, but I was doing a little work on covenant, and here's the deal. Um, Hebrew has a number of words for to to love. A lot of words for to love. We have a lot of words because. We're lovers, right? And so we have a lot of words we can adore, we can cherish, we can love. Okay, but look, here's the deal. When you love, it says that God loves everybody, loves lots of people, and the word the verb for that is amar that God um, that God loves, and then the the ver, the word, the noun for love is amarah. But when you enter into a covenant with someone, and you love that person, you love them with Hesed. It's a different kind of love. That God actually, and there's no English word for it. There's no English equivalent for it. But in Hebrew, it's it's the word hesed. And it's only love that you give to someone that you enter into a covenant with them. When they cut a covenant and one of those parties loves the other, there's a special name for that love. It's called hesed. Your Bible might translate it as covenant love or loyal love. The King James Version translated it as loving kindness. The ESV translates it as steadfast love. The NIV goes back and forth between love and mercy. But you might, a verse, um, your loving kindness, your hesed is better than life. Psalm 63.3. Psalm 57 says, Your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens. The word for love is hesed. Your hesed reaches to the heavens. Your covenant love reaches to the heavens. My friend Bob, he's 85 years old. Um, I serve on a board of directors with him. Um, He's been a good um, mentor, a good friend to me. Um, Bob recently had a heart issue and they needed to go in to correct it. He's 85. I always, Bob, Bob's like Caleb in the Old Testament, like he would take the hill if he could. You know, that's, that's who he is. Um, and there were complications. And he had a, a series of strokes um, during the operation. <laughs> sorry. Um, and he's confined to a bed now. I'm um, <laughs> sorry, I didn't expect this. Woo! Okay. Um, but his wife, Esther, she sings to him in his bed. Esther loves lots of people. Esther loves lots of people. But she loves Bob with Hesed. That's the way God loves you. You might have gone to the fair this weekend. Did anybody notice it was hot this weekend? (laughs) And you might have a little kid, a little child, and they might have been melting down. Um, And so what you did is you picked up your, your daughter and you put her on your shoulders And you walked around. Now, there are lots of kids at the fair that were all melting down. But why did you put your daughter on your shoulders? Because you love her with hesed. That's the way God loves you. I snore. And it's worse when I eat bad. And I'm just kidding. Okay. Okay. And my wife, she'll just gently nudge me and tell me to turn over. She won't kick me out of the room. You know why? She loves me with hesed. It's a covenant love. My brother-in-law and his wife, they went to Uganda. They visited an orphanage, the Amani Orphanage in Uganda. They met two toddler Ugandan boys. This was about, about 12 years ago, maybe 13 years ago. And they said, we think God's calling us to make these two boys a part of our family. And they adopted Dwayne and Joseph from the Imani Orphanage in Uganda. They did it, and their own biological kids said, yes, we think that Dwayne and Joseph should be part of our family. They should be our brothers. And they chose to obligate themselves to these two young boys. There were lots of boys in that orphanage. Why these two? Because they loved them with hesed. They entered into a covenant relationship. We saw, we saw up here the Humphreys. Why, why is it that you guys love Malenga? What do you you love Malenga with Hesed? You've entered into a covenant relationship. You've heard it, you heard it from them. He's like their son. And this is the beautiful thing, when we talk about covenants, it changes the way, even the scriptures, it, 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 it reaches for metaphors to grab. Like in Jeremiah 31, it says, they broke my covenant even though I was a husband to them. Paul will say in the New Testament that what this is like is you being adopted by God, that God becomes your father. It's not just, I will be your God, you will be my people. No, it's, I will be your father, you will be my children. I will be your husband, you will be my bride. Because when you enter into a covenant with someone, you love them differently. You love them with hesed. And when God enters into a covenant with his people, he loves them differently. And if we don't understand that, then when Jesus comes and he, stand, he sits And he reclines with his followers. And he says, eat and drink with me before I spill my own blood. We don't understand that what's happening here is God is coming down and he's choosing to renew the covenant. To expand the covenant, to amend the covenant, to renew the covenant, to make a new covenant that can include you. And it can include I, and can include the people of Israel, and can include anyone who would choose to receive the benefits that he promises. It's the blood of the covenant. I'm going to invite up the worship team, and I'm going to invite up the ushers as well, and we're going to participate in the Lord's Supper. Having heard this, having heard this, and letting this land in our hearts. We'll give a second for everybody to come on up. Um, I know this is—I guess this is the way we, we used to do it. Um, but this is—we're going to pass this all out. But I just want to walk us through this. Thank you guys for doing this. The Last Supper is a covenant meal. It's a covenant meal, in which a covenant is made. I'm going to read from Matthew 26 as we get ready to do this. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is what we're going to do we're going to pass the bread first. We're all going to hold on to it together. Because there's something about the idea that we are, God is our God. He's not just your God individually, he's our God. And we're going to, we're going to, we're going to enter into a covenant meal here today. So we're going to pass the bread first. You guys can start passing the bread. And we're going to pass the bread first, hold on to it. And once, we're, uh, once everybody's been served, I'll come back up and I'll lead us with a couple of thoughts As we move through this, but as you're just reflecting on this idea of that God has reached down, God has made a covenant, and He's invited you to participate in a meal with Him.
2: sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and soul Jesus ready, stands to save Every grace that brings you
1: of this covenant are on our part God says I will be your God and you will be my people what does that mean well um, someone asked Jesus that very same question what's the greatest commandment he says look if you're going to be part of this all you have to do is love the Lord your God with all your heart soul mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself That's what we're commemorating here. Our, we have our part. We've been invited by God, but we have our part. We also have a promise that if we fail in that, that there will be forgiveness. But we're entering into a mutual obligation. And I would just say this. If you've never entered into that mutual obligation with God, you've never said, I do want to love the Lord with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength. That I feel this hesed. I feel like God is coming is coming at me, in me, I want this, then I would say, take and eat. And let's do this together. This is the body of Christ broken for you. Do this in remembrance of him. Once again, we'll pass the cup and hold on to it until we're all served.
2: the blood. sin a tone
1: God sent his own son because God was interested in renewing the covenant. God was interested in not doing it with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood. Because that's what hesed ultimately looks like. There's no greater hesed than if a man lays down his life for his friends. And so, as we do this, let's consider... That Moses is not splashing blood on you, you are ingesting the blood. It's splashing inside of you because God wants to put his law within you, write it on your hearts. This is the blood of the covenant. Do this in remembrance of Jesus.
2: stand together and sing this last song. Your name will ever be on my lips. Your love is devoted like a ring of solid gold, like a vow that is tested. Like a covenant of all, your love is enduring through the winter rain and beyond the horizon with mercy for today. And it's why I sing your praise, well, Ever be on my lips, Ever be on my lips, your praise, well, Ever be on my lips, Ever be on my lips, your praise, Ever be on my lips, Ever be on my lips, your praise, well, Ever be on my lips. Father, the orphan, Your kindness makes me fall, and show shoulder sure our weakness. Your strength becomes our own. The You. No, I your name. And that's why I sing your praise will ever be on my lips. Ever be on my lips. Your praise will ever be on my lips. Ever be on my lips. Your praise will ever be on my lips. Ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips. Your praise will ever be my lips.
1: covenant for another week. (laughs) I joke, but Jesus says, do this often. And as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And I guess this is the thing. God is always inviting you to dine with him. Always. It's the new covenant. It's the new covenant. And so in that grace, in that favor, in that hesed, let's go into our day. Have a great day.